This is the On Conflict Podcast, deep conversations that will transform your relationship with conflict. Season two, a focus on leadership. And now your hosts, Julia Menard and Gordon White. Hello, my name is Julia. I'm Gordon. This is On Conflict Podcast. Season two. Season two. With a leadership focus. With a leadership focus. And today we have the wonderful opportunity to have a conversation with Herb Simmons. And we're thinking we're going to ask Herb to introduce himself. And um, yeah, we'll go from there. Herb, welcome to the show. Thank you, Gordon and Julia. It's a delight to be with you. I'm excited about the topic. And I'm excited to see uh, where our conversation will lead us, because the best conversations usually are ones where you wind up in a place you never anticipated. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. All right. So what do you think might be important for listeners to know about you in terms of just setting the context for this conversation today? Well, um, I've had a kind of very uh, varied and nonlinear life, so I don't have a quick summary. So I won't do a long summary in that case. But but what I will say is that I worked for many years in uh, state and local government doing long-range planning and city management in uh, New Jersey, and uh, also taught at a few colleges and uh, uh, ran a couple nonprofits. And more in the last decade or so, I, my work has focused more and more on climate change. Uh, right now, the last four or five years, I've basically been a kind of uh, climate activist, climate writer working at the local level, the national level, and even at the international level. And I'm finding it um, remarkably exciting and remarkably depressing. And holding both is part of the challenge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well said. Mm -hmm. Um, Herb, I I think you had a position with the state of New Jersey for about 10 years. Is that right? It was quite a significant one. Yeah. Yeah, I was head of basically long-range planning for the state. New Jersey has 8 million people. And uh, I had the opportunity for basically the decade of the 90s to help lead an effort to figure out where New Jersey should go uh, in the next 20 years or so. Of course, now we're past that 20 year period or so we can sort of look back. But it was very, a very exciting time. Uh, and in fact, uh, I don't know if now is the time, but I guess I can mention it. I guess I think it's relevant in light of the context of our conversation that basically the we sort of were legislatively mandated to come up with a plan for the future of the state. Um, It was called the New Jersey Development and Redevelopment Plan. And we were also legislated not to do it with a few of us bureaucrats sitting around a conference room, you know, coming up with ideas and writing them down and hoping that uh, we could get them past the politicians, but rather to do an initial draft of our sort of blue sky vision and then to send it out for detailed negotiations uh, with every county government, we had uh, 21, and every municipal government in New Jersey, and New Jersey has probably more local governments than any place in what was then called the free world, I don't know if it's still, (laughs) 566 local governments, and we basically spent five years literally negotiating both the map of the state where development should occur, where farming should occur, conservation, redevelopment, transit lines, and the actual policies, uh, the hundreds of policies on, um, you know, building in uh, centers and uh, protecting farmland and doing economic development to help people with lower incomes, whatever. 
And, and, and I think I went to, I went to Canada, I think 112 meetings over that period of time. And, and it was, so from a conflict point of view, and we had our, tra our, our staff trained in conflict negotiation in order to be able to, uh, to successfully negotiate um, this document because the local governments uh, did not trust the state. I assume that's not uh, unique to New Jersey. Um, <laughs> and, and so the legislation, instead of just simply saying the state will write a plan, we were obligated to, um, to, to negotiate. In fact, there was actually a term in the plan uh, and in the legislation that I've never seen anywhere else called cross acceptance. Both sides had to agree to accept the ultimate language um, that was developed. Um, so I'll stop there. But it was, I, you know, I learned a lot from it. And, and I, though I, and there have been some evaluations of the process, and most of them have, have shown um, a real benefit in terms of ownership by not just state bureaucrats, but citizens and officials. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering if there's some more you could share could with share our with listeners. Our um, about what you learned. Yeah. Uh, you, oh, yeah, I was going to build on that, too. Yeah. And in particular, what you might have learned about um, how to how to envision, mm -hmm. as well as um, conflict, obviously, it's the On Conflict podcast, you know, what you might have learned about conflict and also leadership, what's required to create a vision of the future. Well, that's a big, uh, a big three part question. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. That's and, true. And by by making that comment, I'm Sure, I'm making sure that I forget the second and third parts, but I'll, I do remember. So you may have to remind me. Uh, yeah. the, the, uh, what, what sticks in my mind is is my favorite part, which is the magic word vision. And uh, you know, we use lots of different techniques, but one of them that that I found amongst the most exciting and fun, and I think it had a uh, you know a significant impact in terms of making the process work, is the ability to to literally put in illustration form uh, or in video form some of the physical changes that we were uh, espousing and recommending. And I'll give you just one example. And that is one of many cities, and I suspect it's probably true in Canada and as well as around the world, uh, older cities were built on top of water bodies, uh, small streams and so forth that were covered over. And then the term, I think it's called daylighting. There are lots of different terms that that one of the things we proposed is that in some cases, basically, we should open up those water bodies again for all sorts of flood benefits and aesthetic and park and recreation and water quality benefits. And so we basically did a simulation of before and after. Uh, and this was way back in, you know, I say way back in the 1990s. <laughs> very, very old. Uh, but and then we also did that with how to take a, like an expressway and turn it into a boulevard which at that time was a very revolutionary idea, or at least a very uncommon idea. It's becoming more common, at least in the States, and I, I would hope and expect in Canada as well. So anyway, I could go on and on, but I think that's one dimension, is the literal uh, uh, meaning of the word vision. Um, people a, a tangible, physical sense of, of what an alternative future might look like in their community. Fantastic. Okay, so I think that addressed the first question. You're right. And I quickly jotted down the other two myself, just in case. <laughs> so yeah, just um, mining this wonderful experience you had over that decade. Um, right. Lessons around conflict, either from that you notice with your staff or in engaging with others? Well, um, that's, a, a, again, a big question. I think uh, there were, the, the first part had to do with, with overcoming the natural 
or maybe unnatural, but very real suspicion that all of the interest groups, not just local governments, because we also negotiated with or the what we recommended impacted the building community, the farming community, the urban community, the uh, you know suburban uh, people with the big lawn community, the the automobile dealers and mass transit operators, essentially every almost every group in the state. Uh, and that took a long time. There were mo- no magic uh, wands that one could wave to overcome that suspicion that that here we were, the state coming in, uh, and they were going to lose either economically, in the case of builders who were, we would say no longer could develop on farmland, for example, or the farmers in, in return, they could no longer sell their land to the developers. And so a lot of it was simply going out there. And it, a lot of it was also, in my recollection, the kind of informal conversations that you had. Uh, again, nothing dramatic in me saying that or original, but it was as much making sure that I had enough uh, arrest to be able after the meeting ended at 10 o'clock to go out for a drink with some of the local folks and, and you know, really listen and debrief and so forth. And I think that, you know, so you, you need a level of, of commitment and, and even stamina, just basic things like that to to, to deal with that. Uh, so, again, I could go on, but but let me, you know, it, it's just and again, it took five years. And I don't I don't think it was five years that was wasted. I don't think it was. Well, geez, we should have been able to do it in two and a half. Because now it's a trade-off. Trade-off. Obviously, the longer you take before you reach a final product, then you're delaying implementation of good stuff. Um, but on the other hand, if you go too quickly, then you lose the opportunity or the risk of losing the opportunity to implement anything. Yeah, and I think what you're saying is really profound. And although, as you said, perhaps n- nothing new per se, but this commitment to relationship, commitment to a connection, informality, and t- to a saying that we have is to go go slow to go fast. Yes. One of my friends actually about 35 years ago, um, uh, who was doing organizational development herself, basically had a, a very similar saying there that, uh, you know, uh, I don't it was almost word for word what you you suggested, and um, I know one of the things that we did was we. Um, I, I was personally influenced by a um, a wonderful professor I had in graduate school who was had come to graduate school after a very high level position and career at federal government and state government and so forth. He was you know one of these people who could he could have gotten by by giving a lecture once a week and then still gotten paid a lot of money and been a star. But instead, he insisted in his class that he meet with every one of his students one on one for at least an hour early on in the semester. And 90 percent of that conversation was about the student. And I felt so, you know, today, even as I talk to the two of you now, I feel all kind of warmth and gratitude. And though I haven't always been able to remember that in my dealings with people in my life, I have enough of the time. Uh, and, you know, and ultimately it's about internalizing that. So you just naturally want to find out about people, whether they're potential friends, enemies, students, teachers, parents, lovers, you know, neighbors, whatever. Well, that might be a beautiful segue to the third part of the question, and then I'll I'll let Gord <laughs> jump in. But what kind of leadership do you think it takes to enable people to come to those places of visioning? I don't know. I mean, I, it, I'd like to be able to say, but I'm not sure... That I could, how much authority I can say it with. I'd like to be able to say that a good leader or an effective leader, somebody who really knows him or herself, 
first. Um, in other words, is a conscious leader, is a mindful person, somebody who is open to mid-course corrections, who is opening to, again, it, it's certainly nothing original to, to listening first before speaking, to uh, feedback from his or her staff, being open to it and responsive in a, in a good way. I think maybe that's, that, I mean, that's one part. And another part, I guess, is, a, again, nothing original, is having a drive and a commitment to actually do what it takes to get back to what I said before, if it means sitting down and having a drink late into the evening afterwards, or um, sitting down with your staff one-on-one -on -one to talk with them, uh, or to find out about people before you meet with them, to read about their background and their history, so you go in feeling like you know something about these folks. It's a whole bunch of both skills and attitudes and preparation that I think has to come together. And maybe there's some inherent um, quality that some people have more than others, clearly do, of being able to project a likability, uh, uh, excitement and whatever. You know, put all that together, and you know, I don't, you know, it's so simple, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Would that it be so. <laughs> Great wish. <laughs> Thank you. One thing I want to underline from what you were saying was, again, this idea of speaking to people, you know, having the drink afterwards, because I think that happens based on a internalized value of connecting, right? You, you mentioned your professor and whatnot, but it's something that you live, right? You don't behave that way unless you inherently value connecting with people, Right. I, I mean, that's right. Because I think if you just do it in a kind of artificial way, because you you know you read some guide or a consultant came in and said you should do that, uh, people are going to see through that because you'll be looking at your watch or your phone or you know waiting for it to end or not really listening, and people will pick it up right away. So I think we understand that you live in you live in Maryland. Is that right? Yeah, actually, I li I do live in Maryland, though uh, in the peculiarities of. Of boundaries, which as an urban planner, I'm always fascinated with. The street I live on, uh, literally about 60 feet, which is what? How many meters is that? 20 meters or something like that? For we're so behind with our feet, is the border with Washington D.C. So when I walk out of my flat after I chat with you now, uh, I have to walk into Washington to get out into Maryland. <laughs> I don't mention that because of the connection with Washington and, and power and all the rest of that conveys. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I'm mentioning it so that we could locate you geographically um, in, on the continent, in the world. Um, and you've written a, uh, some documents, and one of them that you provided to us is called Climate Vision for Montgom Montgomery County. And you live in Montgomery County. Yes, yes. <laughs> and and this is an interesting piece of writing. What you've done, or how I would describe it anyway, is you've taken a reader, you know, 20, 30 years into the future, and then from that point, the person is, look, you're, you're helping them look backwards at the changes that have occurred in order to reach um, a carbon zero emission state for that county, right? Right. Yeah, and all the different things that had to happen to reach there. And it's, it's about 30 pages. It's a very extensive description. Yeah, yeah, I um, I did it in part because I I didn't really see anything out there, uh, both in our county and even elsewhere, that I could locate to provide people with some sense not only of what the end state ought to be or could be or needs to be, depending upon how you look at it, 
but also sort of how you get there. What are the kinds of, of processes, right? That's what you would say in Canada, right? Processes, <laughs> processes, right? Yeah. We won't get into that. Sorry, I brought that up. But anyway, <laughs> what, are the, you know, what, what, what do you need to do to, to get there? And, you know, one of the things that, that I've thought about all these years and with the climate work is that we're really talking about, in my view, we're not simply talking about a sort of one-on-one -on -one substitution of electric vehicles for internal combustion vehicles and uh, you know electric heat pumps for gas heat or coal heat or or natural or oil heat or whatever. I mean, those are things that are necessary, but the ramifications and the consequences and the impacts of doing those go way beyond simply those substitutions. It's really a transformation in almost everything about how we do our business um, and business in the broadest sense, how we live. And so that's what I tried to convey. In fact, after I finished and I surprised myself when I, I added up all the new programs and institutions that I sort of put, it, put, put out in this scenario. And I think I came up with like 30 different institutions that, would, that, I, that this vision incorporates that don't exist right now. Um, everything from, for example, a coalition to deal with the uh, mental and emotional health of everybody because of the severe climate distress that's already beginning and will, you know, tragically, I, you know, I think it's, it's inevitable to have to say this, that, you know, will accelerate greatly and that will affect not just the most vulnerable, though they'll be affected the most, almost by definition, but it'll even affect the leaders. They're, you know, everybody will because the, nobody can put themselves outside of what's happening except for the shortest period of time. So, et cetera, that was just like one. And then another organization, I, I sort of did a, a description of an organ where all the social service and immigrants organizations came together to figure out a way to welcome immigrants and migrants into the county because, you know, as, as Southern Florida disappears and and maybe California with wildfires and Arizona with um, heat that will be too extreme for people to live in and all the other horrors, people will move to more relatively more benign locations. And I think where I live is one of them. In addition, any sane federal government, and we don't have, I mean, I think it's not unfair to say we don't have a sane federal government in our country right now, to say the least, any sane government will be will dramatically expanding their staffs and in order to coordinate and support this incredible transition. So that means since we're, as I said, I'm literally on the doorstep with Washington, we're going to see a massive influx in population. How do we handle that at the same time we're dealing with our own distress? Anyway, so those are just two examples of kinds of new ways of thinking about people joining with each other. And you, know, and you can certainly put what I'm describing now in the context of conflict. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This all fits in this larger, you know, thinking about conflict writ large. Yeah, which, so, which we do. <laughs> yeah, we were just, I was just going to ask you about that. So you've, yeah. you've anticipated my question, which is in, in actualizing such a vision, what are the types of conflicts that you would expect that a, a leader would encounter? And how would she or he be wise, I guess, to think about those and respond to them? Well, I think the, the first conflict is to have a leader who, um, who, who gets the need to even uh, support and sponsor 
this transformation. I mean, that's the biggest hurdle because right now we've got, we can probably count the, uh, the leaders, quote unquote, in uh, North America who, who have both the vision and the dedication and the position to do that on, you know, maybe one hand. I mean, that's the first challenge. And, and I don't have a, I wish I had an answer to that. I wish I said, here's formula number one to, to do that. Um, but, well, you know, once you have that, then, then I think your question comes into play. You know, it's like, okay, you win the election. What, the next morning you get up, what do I do now? And I think your sort of question is what, how do you, uh, how do you take, create a vision and then implement it? Um, and uh, anyway, I'll just stop there in terms of the, the, this first huge thing. And I think that's part of the reason that, obvious reason that we're seeing the um, Extinction Rebellion and the school strikes uh, and uh, uh, Sunrise Movement in the United States. And I assume you probably have an equivalent in Canada. Um, all these groups finally, 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 finally emerging to say enough is enough. You know, I mean, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, it's just insane that we, we haven't been able as, as a series of societies in this world to, to act upon what's so self-evident. I was happy and proud to be one of three people who um, uh, went to our county government uh, two years ago next month, actually, and got them to pass the first climate emergency resolution in the United States and only the second in the world after a small community in Australia. This was December 5th, 2017. And now there are 1,100 communities, I just checked this morning, um, covering... Um, tens and tens of millions of people all over the world that have declared climate emergencies, including many, of course, in Canada. Uh, and that's really gratifying. To, that's still just a word, two words, climate emergency. It's action, obviously, that, that matters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm imagining, not imagining, I'm thinking about some of the specific types of conflict. So one would be... Um, financial interest right heavily invested financial interest people with a lot of money who are going to oppose this another would be people who for whatever reason speak very in very ill terms about environmental activism you know and about the people become very personal about it right and are very very have very strong feelings themselves on the other side of it thinking that this is completely blown out of proportion or it doesn't even exist perhaps you know so how as a leader do you respond to those kind of conflicts those are two examples i guess first i i guess i would not that you haven't asked the question what other kinds of of splits are there but i think it's really there, there if i if i could answer that that question that you didn't answer Please. then <laughs> or at least attempt an answer. Yeah, it's probably a better question. <laughs> I, I think, I think no, it's not better. It's just maybe uh, comes first and then yours, yeah. <laughs> yours is a good follow-on. Um, we've never had an issue that's, that's created uh, so many different kinds of conflicts. Um, uh, different, uh, if you're doing a conflict map, and maybe you, you all do that in your work in some sort, and there's probably many different ways to visualize or formulate it or put it down on paper or explain it to people. But there, there are so many cleavages that are so different and so unique to climate and so vexing. And, and obviously, if that wasn't the case, we'd have made a lot more progress. And by we, I mean, countries all over the world, there's hardly a country in the world that's meeting its Paris commitments, for example. And those are 
as everybody knows who follows this, uh, you know, utterly inadequate. So, you know, it, it's so, you know, we have to have a certain amount of humility about this rather than simply saying, well, we just need to do X, Y and Z. But anyway, that's the first thing I, I would say. It, it, and so, you know, one of the, so when I think about it, I, I think about, for example, the conflict between and, and this is an, a common human conflict, but it's magnified a billion times in climate between benefits now versus benefits in the future. Maybe that's one of the central conflicts or so. And that's why, not surprisingly, young people are more committed to climate action than older folks or so. But I mean, basically, it's a question of put, of sacrificing to some degree or to a large degree our way of life now, at least portions of our way of life, to protect the way of life in the future or just even life, any kind of way of, a way of life. Um, that's, you know, that that's sort of one conflict. And along with that goes the, the religious dimension among fundamental religions, whether it's Christianity or, or I suspect um, uh, Islam or Judaism, my, my religion, uh, there's much less support for climate action uh, than there is among more um, uh, mainstream, more progressive uh, forms of those religion. And, and, uh, and I think it's in part because it's very disorienting, because if you believe in, in a benevolent God or even a malevolent God, but an all-powerful God, then you figure either and I'm oversimplifying, of course, there are thousands of religious sects out there with different subtle differences. But you think, well, either then the, the, this is what God wants uh, for, for us to, you know, for this is at the end times, the beginning of the end times. And who are we to interfere with that? Or if all these changes are, are occurring, it, it, it can't be because of God, because if, if it was bad, God wouldn't allow it to happen. So it's got to be good. Now, we're all sorts of different ways to. And those are some of the most intractable conflicts, because, I mean, you tell me, but, you know, is, is there anything uh, uh, anything that's held more deeply among so many people than their religious beliefs? Um, and, and uh, you know, in the minute they stray, you know, their pastor or minister or rabbi or somebody is sort of attempting to get them back in line or so. Anyway, I'm kind of rambling on, but they're. And I haven't answered your question at all, which is how do you deal with these conflicts? <laughs> uh, so I'm aware of that anyway. And you can admonish me and, uh, and push me in that direction if, if you'd like, Gordon. <laughs> well, at least to lay out a couple of the, these sort of fundamental. And there, there are many, many of these. I mean, we could spend the whole hour and I won't. And, you know, sure. you know, or, or just just identifying mm -hmm. uh, and classifying these conflicts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, well, one of the things you uh, you mentioned was humility. And so maybe that's one of the things you're advocating, right? In order to, as a, as a leadership stance in responding to some of these. Well, I, I think so. And part of the reason is because we don't, uh, we don't really know how to do this. We don't know. Uh, the science, for example, is, is changing. I follow, oh, I don't know, like 10 different newsletters that report the latest climate news every morning or so from all over the world. And I don't go by more than a day or two without reading a study or a headline of a study that says now that uh, that scientists have learned something new that they did not know before. And that and almost 90 percent of the time it's bad news. This is happening <laughs> faster. This is more severe, it's, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's really humbling in terms in terms of figuring out how to act, even if you are the leader or, or as a leader. Um, because we're constantly getting new information. For example, there was a, a, a study a while back, uh, just a few weeks ago, saying that if we planted, that we had enough land on the planet to plant 
hundreds of millions more trees and that they could take out a whole bunch of carbon out of the atmosphere. And I was just reading uh, before our call today some critiques by scientists who said that basically that study misses almost all the key aspects of tree planting for a whole bunch of reasons that aren't relevant to go into now. So it's, you know, in tree planting, it's sort of one of these uh, apple pie kind of ideas. Everybody loves tree planting. You know, I mean, even a, you know, a Grinch may not make a difference or it may even make things worse. Uh, I caught in my, in my book, I, I wrote a book called A Climate Vocabulary of the Future, but with five or 600 new terms. One of the terms I came up with is what I call the carbon maze. That every time we think that we've got an answer, not every time, but many of the times, we then learn that we've hit a dead end in the maze and we have to sort of go back to scratch again or so. So humility would be one thing. Anything else you could suggest to, uh, to someone in a leadership position in terms of dealing with these particular types of cleavages? Well, I think that humility and then it's connected, as I said, with, an o with open mindedness, I guess. I don't know if the two are always, always connected each other, but I think it, and, and maybe it's all, I mean, it's also, this is a cliche and nothing new, but it's a kind of single mindedness that, that we are in an existential emergency. I mean, that, that, that this is something that will end life as we know it one way or the other in the next couple of decades. And we either we collectively can sort of try to figure out how to do it, however long the odds are, in a way that preserves a modicum of of life and, and livability or, you know, in a, in a catastrophic way. But that only comes in it now. I put, you know, I'm listening to myself say this. I'm sort of putting my preacher hat on. So excuse me there. Um, but. There was a British scientist, a very eminent British scientist, Sir David King, who was an advisor to four prime ministers, who said not long ago, I happened to see him speak in London, he said, what we do in the next 10 years will impact the next 10,000 years or so. So if you're a leader, that's got to be in your head and, it, and in your heart um, every moment of the day. I mean, the same way that, you know, the Churchill and FDR and others in, you know, in a war, I hate to use war analogies, but I think it's irrelevant in some respects. And I suspect that, that those leaders never forgot that they were fighting for the existence of their people and their land. And that's really the challenge that we have uh, to, to do that. So you need humility on the one hand, and it's, it's kind of like so many contradictory or, or seemingly contradictory um, qualities, humble, and also being focused and determined. Are they contradictory or are they supportive? I don't know, you're the expert, but I mean, you, know, the, you need to have this set of qualities to be open to new ideas, but never ever to, not just to, to give up or forget um, the, the urgent need for action, but to find, continually find new ways to convey that to the public. Now we think of, uh, again, the, the FDR fireside uh, chats and. And, and Churchill with his famous sayings and so forth. And we, we remember them and we read them because they apparently really did have an impact on us back then to mobilize them for the hard times ahead. Just one, one more thing I'd like to say about this portion of the conversation. What you're saying is consistent to, to one of the leaders in our field, Bernie Mayer, who's one of his most recent books is about the, uh, the existence of paradoxes 
in dealing with conflict. And right, you're talking about a kind of leadership where you remain extremely one pointed and focused about the urgency of it, yet at the same time you maintain humility and open mindedness. Right, both are required, even though they are in, in some sense opposing each other. Yeah. Another paradox, I think, is the getting back to what we talked about earlier about negotiation and open mindedness with with people listening to all sorts of views and coming to an agreement, yet we don't have time to listen to everybody's views if we're gonna act effectively on climate change. So there, there, is almost, there has to be a kind of um, uh, authoritarian dimension. I hate to, a word, there's gotta be a better word than that. Uh, I'll, I'll come back and extend my remarks maybe when I come up with one but, or modify them, but you know, uh, almost a kind of ruthlessness. And I say this with hesitation, but I, I really believe it that you know, we, we have this responsibility for a thousand generations of people in the future that literally may not exist unless we do the right thing. So I guess what I would say, uh, get enough input to allow you to, uh, to, to get support from people, but not so much that you don't have time to, def, you know, to take the proactive action to get the results you have to ha- get. I'm, I'm going to take us perhaps a bit circuitous um, because we're talking right now about the responsibilities of leaders. And I'm curious about w- what is required of each of us as individuals to bring out the leadership required from each of us. So there's that piece. And I also want to speak to Herb, you've been thinking about this for a long time. You know, how you, and again, this is the individual theme, I think, individual leadership. How do you maintain any sense of the vision or the determination part? Because I know for me, and I've spoken about this actually on the podcast before as well, certainly with Elizabeth May, there's a part of me that really goes to collapse. I mean, I know about the sixth extinction, and there's an element of, you know, I know what conflict looks like at its worst. And it's not pretty. I know it from my work, but I think as I also mentioned to you off air, I also know it from my mother's experiences with the war. And so there's a part of me that's quite dark about all these changes, dark and and a sense of helplessness. And so I'm, you know, that's what I'm curious about. I'm sure I'm not the only one. You spoke about the need for people's mental and emotional well-being, the more that the realities are going to sink into everybody, regardless as to whether you quote unquote believe it or not. It's happening. We turn on the TV. It's got to affect people to see fires from, you know, from outside of the Earth's orbit. Yeah, so it's it's that kind of direction. I'd be curious about from your own experiences. How would you speak to our, our listeners, a listener? about what's what's required in the here and now. Each question you ask is more challenging than the, than the previous one, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is what I, what I had expected. So, um, <laughs> Okay, should I say I'm sorry? <laughs> I, I, I just was able to delay my response by 30 seconds by saying that now I have to respond. Um, the, the, um, well, let me mention a, a, maybe a modest uh, a, a modest thing that, that we do in one of the group I'm in. The, it's called the Climate Mobilization, and our local chapter here in the county, the guy who started the chapter, he basically suggests that we do, and we do it regularly. At the beginning of every meeting, we have a, a basically a one-on-one conversation. People pair off into twos or threes, depending upon the numbers, and just for three minutes or five minutes each, speak uninterrupted about what's on their mind or what's in their heart as a way both of 
uh, ideally um, loosening or, or diminishing their emotional burden or sharing something positive, but also as a way to connect us with each other. So we see and feel um, more dimensions of the people that we interact with. So if an hour later in the meeting, there is a conflict about what, you know, should we do civil disobedience? Should we, you know, decarbonize our cars before we decarbonize our buildings? There are a thousand other things like that. Hopefully we have, I guess what you might call a more robust shock absorber built in to our, to our small little collective system. And so I think some, you know, practices like that, and there may be lots of different variations of that. Some people are more or less comfortable with those things. Um, ought to be, I, I think, could be really valuable, particularly in the kind of atomized world that many of us live in, in our little boxes or little, you know, houses here or there, uh, where we don't see our neighbors and our relatives uh, aren't living upstairs; they're living a thousand miles away, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one small piece, I think, and and that's and you could also put that under the rubric of resilience. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Mm -hmm. So that's one piece of it, and it reminds me of some of the work that I've also um, experienced in the climate action group that I've been involved in, that again, we spoke about briefly off the air, but I remember one of the early meetings, I spent most of the 90 minutes in tears um, mm -hmm. <laughs> as I first started to really sink into the reality of it. So I appreciate um, such a simple practice, three or five minutes each to just open your hearts. And I'm just curious what else you might offer people who are listening. What's required of each of us individuals to step up to our, our leadership? What's required of each of us? Well, I, the first thing, I don't know if it's the first thing. I don't know what, what first, second, or third these days. But things is, again, it's so obvious. But is find some reliable sources of information and inform yourself as much as you can because there's so much, uh, as with almost everything, unfortunately and tragically, so much uh, what I call uh, synthetic information rather than natural information, yeah, information that's that's manufactured uh, to serve the interests of, of people uh, manufacturing that information and not the people getting it. So learn all you can about the climate crisis and the biodiversity uh, crisis and, and continue learning. It's not just, well, now I've learned it, I can act. But don't make any major or significant decisions about I'm gonna do this or do that or join that group uh, until you, you know, learn a little bit or join a group or, or, or conversation with people to learn. And when you reach a point where you feel you have some sense of the, the contours of whether it's local, national, international, um, then you'll be in a better position to make your own decisions, you know, on, on talking to so many people over the past few years and Twitter and all the rest of it. And there's, there's these constant exhortations to, um, uh, you know, change your behavior and fly less and eat less meat and eat more of that and do this and blah, 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 and whatever. And then the other people say, no, we need system change and not, it's not personal change. And, you know, it's so tiresome to listen to it. And I don't mean to demean anybody who's articulating those things. But unless and until you're, you have some background, enough of a background to, to, to sort of distill that information you're hearing, uh, it's hard to know how to act effectively. So that's the first thing I would say, and then I'll stop because I don't want to 
filibuster. Yeah. Okay. So I'm. Um, I'm. Thank you for the pauses in between. So a piece a piece of the inner leadership that's required is to continually educate, to be a continuous learner. Right. There's that piece. Right. Yeah. Right. And yeah. what else to help with the? For me, I'm looking for the helplessness. The there's a part, not all of me, but there's a part of me that just wants to give up because it's too big. Well, you know, it's interesting because I think. You, you've hit upon something really important. You know, one of the things I go back and part of the reason I'm involved with this in particular among the many groups that I focus with is the climate mobilization. It was actually, it was started by a psychologist, a uh, 30 something psychologist uh, who just started reading about climate five years ago and it's now become one of the most influential movements. Um, but, you know, one of the first principles, again, it sounds so obvious, is sort of learn and tell the truth and if the truth is that you, Julia, are feeling despair, say it, say it, write it. If you know, if you don't yeah. you know, say it, to I do a, it. You don't want to write do it. it. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and by extension, it's it's hard. It's it, it takes courage. We're not taught to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, I think there's um there's been I think a terrible um, misapprehension about the the um, downside of acknowledging and feeling despair or helplessness. And, and you know, so, uh, for years, I think most climate communicators have basically said, we can't scare people. We have to give people hope. So if you write an article, you know, there was this uh, uh, Derek Jensen. I don't know if you know Derek's work. He's a very passionate environmental writer. One of his articles where he, he writes about hope and how he basically doesn't believe in hope. He finds it very disempowering. But he says, he says, whenever he's asked to write an article for a magazine and he writes about all this despair and the editor will say, well, I want you to end with some hope. <laughs> now, we can't leave our audience, in, uh, you know, hanging there. And then, and yes, you can and you should if that's the truth. Yeah. No, yeah. I don't to oversimplify, but I think it's a yeah. very profound uh, observation. In other words, let's not treat at least adults as kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and I can feel despair for a day or a minute or an hour or maybe even a month or two and then snap out of it and then act and then maybe go back to despair because it's the kind of world where we're all going to be if we allow our feelings to come out and acknowledge them we're going to be in all kinds of different states that's okay yeah and herb when you say that you know you've kind of given me my antidote in a way because i think as you say speaking one's truth and being received emotionally being acknowledged that where one is is okay has an ameliorating effect has a dissolving effect and it cycles back to something Gord spoke about earlier I think with the the two of you and your component where Gord said there's this piece about a value around connection human connection and I actually for the first time just glimpsed something positive which is perhaps this crisis and this mayhem will give us more opportunity to reconnect human to human to human because we are going to need each other more than we certainly ever have in a very 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 long time that's right and that you know in a way I think that's a good segue a great segue into the question about leadership and so one of the dimensions is to say the kind of effective leader we need now uh, and, and has to emerge has to emerge are leaders that encourage and support connection. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, <clears throat> I have a, a question about that or a thought about that is, 
you spoke about the group you're in, you know, and having those few minutes to talk about what you're experiencing, feeling to people in the group. But what we also want to try to do is create those kind of connections with people who think and feel very differently than us, right? So that's the other thing. We want to try and build that kind of connection with people on the other side of the divide, right? Mm -hmm. And how do we do that is a, another question, right? Moving from hard <laughs> to harder. Well, one of, one of the challenges there, in addition to the kind of, uh, uh, you know, apparent uh, on the, one on the surface, which is people, you know, these are people with different views, is that I was just talking to somebody about this yesterday, that we've, uh, at least in the United States, and I suspect it's true to some degree, maybe as much in Canada, I hope not, we've self-sorted ourselves out geographically in the United States, where basically the, you know, the, the people on the left are living with the people on the left, whether it's within a neighborhood of a city or a state or a region or whatever. And so we don't run into, our kids don't go to school with the kids of, of, of different thought beliefs. Uh, you know, the supermarket is, you know, you know, like in the United States, United States, they have the analysis, simplistic, but I think uh, accurate analysis. You could tell so much about a community, uh, whether it has a Whole Foods. Do you have, I don't know if you have there in Canada or not. Un yeah. Unfortunately or fortunately. <laughs> yes, we do. But in other words, we, we, if it has a Whole Foods versus a, a Cracker Barrel, I don't know if you have Cracker Barrel, but basically, you know, it's a simplistic, you know, uh, uh, demographic thing and I was but th those are so powerful so anyway that's one of the huge challenges that and obviously that's true in terms of the media you know we don't just have the couple networks to watch anymore in any country you've got 500 channels and all the rest of it so I, I you know I'm not not that it gives me any happiness to um, to you know give all the reasons why this can happen but I guess what I would say is that whenever possible Start as much as you can start with if, if you want to sort of begin dialogue start with the people who are most like you But may not be as Quite where you are at this point. I mean, that's what I've been sort of arguing for years now is don't try to convince people who deny climate change exists Try to convince people who do accept climate change to act mm -hmm. <laughs> And not just sort of say yes, it's a problem and now, you know, I'm gonna you know fly to Rome for a vacation and, uh, you know, get on with my life and do nothing. Um, and so I think there, and, and that's, that's more doable. Yeah, I just want to tie that in, um, trying to convince people who already might think like you to actually act leads me back to this idea of despair and isolation, and then back to this idea of connection and, and, and community, actually. And to some of the ideas that are starting to bubble up locally in this small group that I've been involved in, this idea of many of our neighbors are sitting isolated in their own homes, looking at the news, and really not knowing what to do and not doing anything. And I think what you're saying, Herb, is the, the action wedge is in people who think enough like us, but might need some support and bridging to act, yeah? Yeah, and I think there's some practical things. One of the things, I, I, I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with Extinction Rebellion, the group that started in the UK last year that I've had a lot of contact with. In fact, I was just in England when they had their major demonstrations as well as elsewhere around the world a couple of weeks ago. But one, one of the things that's emerged are all these kind of uh, affiliate groups like Extinction Rebellion accountants or Extinction Rebellion engineers Extinction Rebellion Jews that I spent with some time with in, in London or so. So if you're sitting at home 
I mean, but maybe your profession, to the degree to which you're, some of the folks in your profession or your occupation begins to, to organize some climate response, and it doesn't have to be at the uh, philosophy of extinction rebellion where you expect to get arrested next week. But I think that can help break down isolation. So it's not just, let me talk to my neighbor, it's let me talk to somebody in, my, in the world that I, that I inhabit uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. And uh, I think there's real promise there uh, for action. And I think we, we uh, like, just to get back for a minute to our effort in Montgomery County, in the two years since they passed the climate resolution, the emergency resolution, they've done very little. And many of us have been just butting our heads, you know, and, and, you know, protesting and protesting and writing letters and writing my vision and all the rest of it. And, you know, lately I've been thinking, well, maybe let's, they're going to do what they're going to do. And maybe what we need to do is take our time and talk to the people in their, in our, in our, in the allied professions, occupations, our churches, our schools as a way of bringing about climate change. That's interesting. So your thinking of late has been shifting, hoping, obviously, that government will act and at the same time moving more to other community groups to create connection, change and possibly pressure. Yes, community and occupational uh, kinds of, of groups or so. Uh, I mean, for example, there was just a um, an editorial in the um, I think it was the, the Lancet. Uh, the the uh, uh, British Medical Journal, that's one of the preeminent medical journals in the world, that basically, if, if I remember correctly, just a few days ago, said that uh, healthcare folks more or less have an obligation to um, do uh, civil disobedience. It's, it's reaching that point. I may be exaggerating a bit. I'll go back and uh, send it to you, and you can amend my comments if I exaggerate. <laughs> I didn't, I'm not exaggerating on purpose, but it, it, it really opened my eyes. And because the good news and the bad news about climate is it affects everything. So that's the bad news. But the good news is that there's almost no individual or group that couldn't easily see a, um, a dimension where they can act because of the connection between climate and what they do and who they are. Fabulous. What a huge uh, vision you're also opening up right now. Thank you. Just say a, f a little bit more about your book, I think, because it's fairly recently published and listeners might be interested in, you know, where they can get it. And Okay, great. Uh, so the book is called A Climate Vocabulary of the Future. And if you've, as listeners have have talked about our conversation about the future. What, what I realized uh, a couple years ago was because climate affects everything, it would be really useful to think about what a new vocabulary that encompassed all these different dimensions of climate might look like. And so I was silly enough or crazy enough to actually try to do that. And so I came up with a few hundred different words and terms to um, describe various dimensions of climate, the economic and the political and the social and the psychological and, and physical and scientific and so forth. And I think, I think, I think it's always hard for an author to talk about his or her book uh, objectively, but I, a lot of people read it actually learn a lot and they laugh a lot, <laughs> <laughs> consciously or unconsciously to sort of put some humor in there, uh, which as I write in my preface actually helped me write the book because it helped deflate some of the despair that I felt writing the book. And I, if I could sort of put a little distance by making a joke about something or coming up with a silly term, you know, like uh, the Kardashian 
climate index, for example. <laughs> it's the ratio of the number of, of times that people search for the Kardashians on the internet versus climate change <laughs> will tell you. Um, for the, if the, I don't know, I guess you probably, well, of course you know in Canada, the, the Koch brothers, I guess it's now only one Koch, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, these sort of archetypical arch archetypal, um, climate villains. So if, 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 in, if the Koch brothers were coming up with a new, a new climate group, um, they would call it, and I think most of your listeners probably know, I assume they're active in Canada, the friends of the earth. So they, the Koch brothers would come up with friends of the enemies of the earth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Terms like that in the book. Uh, not all technical scientific stuff. In fact, very little of it is. Yeah. So, well, that, uh, I think the humor probably at Amazon and, uh, you know, the usual places, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Great. I think the humor probably helps uh, readers to uh, benefit from what you've written as well. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Last question. Sure. Yeah. So our closing question now then, Herb, mm -hmm. uh, the, just anything come to your mind that you think might be categorized as advice? Somebody is sitting here listening to our conversation and your parting words around advice on leadership, conflict, climate change, the future. I, I guess my, my advice uh, is given with hesitation um, uh, because I usually find that when I when it's uh, labeled as advice, people don't want to hear it. <laughs> True enough. Yes. So that's the one. So the, you probably your listeners are probably you know uh, c clicking off right now. I don't need <laughs> the advice. I'm listening to this enough, but but it's so humbly delivered. I think they'll be curious. <laughs> well, that's why that I'm trying to pre-inoculate what I. Say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which is you know I think I'll, I could say a lot of different things now. The one that comes to mind is maybe the 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 most sort of grandiose, which is notwithstanding all the horrors that are starting to occur and will occur, we largely as a people still have the future of our lives and our communities and our nations and our world in our hands. And, and moments of despair, as we talked earlier, or moments of helplessness, as you've said, acknowledge them and uh, don't feel guilty about it, don't feel embarrassed about it, or try not to anyway. And, but then recognize that uh, you'll come out of that to some degree or other and maybe this idea of our own empowerment can help us as individuals and as groups of people to, to both come out of our despair and also then to take the kind of vigorous action that at the very least will reduce the amount of harm that's done in the world to us, to our neighbors, to our communities, to our families, and may actually turn around things because uh, we just don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Thank you. That was yeah. very helpful. Yeah, thanks so much, Herb. It was a great weaving of the climate emergency conflict and leadership, mm -hmm. which is exactly what we were hoping for, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. But yeah. I'm, I'm glad. I didn't know. I was a little nervous about, geez, the whole hour on conflict. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you guys were great. And, and uh, it was wonderful to, uh, to have an opportunity to, to chat and laugh with you and explore ideas uh, today. <laughs> and I realized there's so much... I mean, there is really so much to talk about with people who are interested in talking about this and uh, so many different dimensions to all this. And it is, um, as one of the participants, I, part I participated in a retreat that Jim had in Greece in June. Uh, and one of our participants actually from Oregon, Dean Spillane Walker, I don't know if you, you heard of him and know of him. Um, he's a, kind of a communicator consultant also. 
you know, I'll, I'll connect the two of you. I mean, the three of you, because anyway, he's, he said something like, you know, like this is the most important work in the world right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, that may sound a little grandiose, but I think there's a lot more than a kernel of truth in the kinds of conversations that, that we're having right now here and, and elsewhere. So it's what more can you ask for than at the very least to be alive at this amazing time when all this stuff is happening. Um, and we can be a, uh, not just a, uh, an observer, but a participant in it. Yeah. Herb, that was such an inspiring way to end this conversation. Thank you so much. Oh, great. Great. Thank you so much. If you love this episode of On Conflict, then help us out by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. And you can spread these big ideas too by sharing on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you show up online. Want to know more about us? Check out our website on conflictpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening. Now, go make the world a better place.